from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. try to do some philosophy so I don't have any slides to put up on the wall which means if we could maybe turn some more lights on because I'm getting sleepy and I don't know if anyone, anyone else is but uh, maybe that'll help us stay awake. Also if I just project can everyone hear me I feel more yeah. comfortable not using a microphone is this okay? Yes. All right. Yes, they were. Yes, okay. Yeah, the light back in Yeah, which is the light? Oh, this one here. Good. Okay. Do you like that? Yeah. Like this? Oh, there we go. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, first of all, I want to say I'm very happy to be here. I've met a number of you uh, over email, but it's nice to have the ongoing opportunity to get to say hello in person. And there are a number of you I still would like to meet and talk to. So anyway, thank you for inviting me. This is a nice opportunity. Uh, my name is Brian Earp. I am a research associate in the philosophy department at the University of Oxford, and I uh, conduct research in practical ethics and medical ethics, among some other topics. Um, but this is a, an area of research that's relatively new to me. Uh, my background is in uh, philosophy and cognitive science, and it's just in the last uh, year and a half or so that I've started to look at uh, uh, ethics in particular, uh, and less than that that I've been looking at, at circumcision. So what that means is, uh, these are some new arguments that I'm trying to try out, and this is the first draft of these arguments that's seen the light of day. And I'll ask for your feedback afterwards. I'll try to leave some time for questions because in November I'll be giving a similar talk in England, and I'd like to have uh, a chance to fine-tune these arguments while I, I still have the advantage of a friendly audience. So please, uh, please don't hold, hold back from your criticisms. I really will uh, take them to mind and try to hone these arguments uh, looking forward to November. So as you saw from the program, my topic is on the ethics of infant male circumcision, specifically as it is performed for religious reasons. I should begin by saying that in debates on this topic, I've noticed that there is sometimes a very serious reluctance to address the issue of religious motivation directly. And this is true even among those who are otherwise outspoken in their opposition to circumcision on other grounds. For example, in 2007, Harry Meislon of the Illinois chapter of NoCirc was asked by Eliyahu here in an interview that uh, many of you will have seen if he would argue that Jews should discontinue circumcising their babies along with secular or Christian parents who might be doing it out of cultural habit or because they thought it might be good for the baby's health. Harry replied, no, I don't prescribe for Jews at all. This is an absolute loser. I'm not Jewish. I withdraw from this field because it generates lots of heat and very little light. The philosopher Ian Brasington has recently expressed a similar concern. On the Journal of Medical Ethics blog, he wrote, though I have mentioned the recent decision of the German court that ritual circumcision constituted assault, I've wanted to stay clear of saying more about it because it seemed too potentially toxic. To give another example, the bioethicist Dan O'Connor from Johns Hopkins University has recently said, when a reporter calls my work and asks if there is a bioethicist in the house who will give the anti-circumcision viewpoint, I beg off. It would be a I would be a terrible interviewee anyway, since I would have to preface my every argument with, uh, against circumcision with rambling spiels about what loving and caring parents my Jewish friends are. 
Uh, finally, an Oxford colleague of mine wrote to me in a recent email. To be honest with you, I am strongly anti-circumcision. The reason I don't write papers on this topic is that I have a large number of circumcised Jewish friends who I think would be offended if they found out about my views. Like all of the men I have just mentioned, I find myself in the position of being very skeptical about ritual circumcision on ethical grounds for reasons I will lay out in the next several minutes. And yet I'm well aware that since I myself am neither Jewish nor Muslim, I have an especially good chance of offending or irritating someone who is when I publicly criticize this practice. This chance is, of course, magnified by the fact that circumcision is seen or is argued by some uh, to be a central or even obligatory ritual in each of these faiths. And just like the bioethicist Dan O'Connor and the Oxford colleague whose email I quoted above, this potential for causing offense extends to many of my closest friends, to colleagues of mine, and to a, a pretty wide range of people I have no particular interest in irritating. So perhaps there's a reason to hesitate. Because religious convictions are a deep and certainly emotionally charged aspect of the lives of so many, attempts to question a religiously motivated practice, especially by one who is not religious or differently religious, can lead to outcomes that are very far from productive. To illustrate, here's a quote from the comment section of a blog post I published on this topic in 2011. Sorry, Brian, you're entitled to your non-Jewish opinion, but we've been doing very nicely for 5,771 years with this ancient tradition of our people. And I don't even know who the hell you are, but this kind of nonsense just pisses me off. So, as I say, sometimes the conversation doesn't turn out to be as productive as I would have hoped. Part of what I think is going on here is that we have an unwritten rule in polite society that says that certain ideas or practices are out of bounds for critical discussion. The English humorist Douglas Adams made essentially the same point in a speech he gave in Cambridge in 1998. Talking about religious customs specifically, he said, here's an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. If somebody votes for a party that you don't agree with, you're free to argue about it as much as you like. Everybody will have an argument, but nobody feels aggrieved by it. If somebody thinks that taxes should go up or down, you are free to have an argument about that. But on the other hand, if someone says, I mustn't move a light switch on a Saturday, you're supposed to say, fine, I respect that. Now obviously, I don't have any arguments about whether it's okay or not okay, or when it's okay to use a light switch. I do want to focus, though, for a second on this idea about respect. I don't think it actually is showing respect to anyone to give an automatic pass to anything they say or do just because it may have to do with their religious practice. I think that that sort of avoidance has much more to do with fear than with respect. Fear that you might upset the person, or fear that you might sound stupid for not knowing more about the custom, or fear that the conversation might turn out to be awkward, or whatever the fear might be. Respect, it seems to me, is very different from this. Respect has to do with taking certain positive things for granted. In my own experience, for example, I sometimes talk with my Jewish friends and acquaintances about my views on the ethics of circumcision. And I respect them enough to know that they'll listen with an open mind, really consider what I'm saying, and assume the best of intentions on my part. And most of the time, they respect me enough to know that I will do them the same courtesy, which of course I will. Respect, it seems to me then, is not about avoidance. It's about the opposite of avoidance. It's about engagement, conversation, communication, so long as these are done in a fair-minded and well-intentioned way. I also think that there's something potentially very condescending about the idea that someone's feelings, religious or otherwise, might be so fragile and irrational that instead of just saying what you really believe and having an honest conversation about it, 
you should tiptoe around and blush and make excuses and pretend that you don't mean what you mean or think what you think. That doesn't seem like real respect either, and I think that my religious friends would be rightly insulted if they thought I was operating out of this sort of mindset when I talked with them about their beliefs and practices. So having said all of that, in what follows, I'm simply going to trust that I can engage directly with the ethical arguments for and against religiously motivated circumcision without having to hedge or qualify or worry about whether I might offend someone for whom this practice is seen as being too sacred to talk about. People are free to disagree with me, of course, and I will be happy to take on board any constructive criticism that they have to offer, but I do want to spend the rest of my time dealing directly with the arguments after I pour myself some water. <laughs> Uh, I'll start with an argument against religiously motivated circumcision, and then I will consider some common objections. The premise of my argument is this. As a rule, it should be considered morally impermissible to sever healthy tissue from another person's body, perhaps especially if that tissue is coming from the person's reproductive organs, without first asking and then actually receiving that person's permission. Now, ordinarily, and with respect to almost every case we could imagine, this would count as a foundational ethical principle. It does presume that the individual is an appropriate unit for moral analysis. It does presume that individuals have rights as persons, that bodily integrity is one of those rights, and that the infringement of that integrity can only be permitted under conditions of informed consent. Of course, someone could question or even deny any one of those presumptions but then they would have to come up with a better way to ground their own moral theories that didn't inadvertently create a justification for having part of their body cut off without their permission. I'm not saying that this is impossible, but it's something to look out for. And actually, I think there is a competing metaphysic hidden within religious defenses of circumcision, and it's one that downplays the relevance of the individual, and specifically the individual as a child, to independent moral consideration. But I will come on to that point a little later on. For now, let's assume that the ethical premise I've given is a reasonable one, and let's take it for granted to see what follows. Well, since ritual circumcision involves the removal of healthy tissue from the genitals of a newborn or young child, and since babies and young children are incapable of giving meaningful consent to such a procedure, our principle is obviously violated, and therefore circumcision is unethical on this theory. Now, this is not just abstract philosophy. As most of us know, the recent decision by the German court in Cologne, which said that ritual circumcision is a form of assault, relied on ethical reasoning very similar to what I have just laid out. And as we also know, this conclusion was not very readily accepted by a large number of religious leaders within Judaism and Islam, and even within some corners of Christianity. And this last part should be a little surprising, of course, since the founder of Christianity, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, was explicitly and even energetically opposed to the practice of circumcision, as he made very clear in his letters to the earliest Christian churches. And as uh, Sammy explained yesterday, this was the official church position for a pretty long time. But leaving that aside, what this reaction to the Cologne decision means is that we can look at some objections to the argument I have given that are not just hypothetical, but that have actually been given, and very recently, as serious attempts to defend ritual circumcision against the charge that it is an unethical practice. And I would like to consider a few of these objections one at a time. The first objection is that religious circumcision is an ancient tradition and one that is felt to be very important to the practice of Judaism or Islam. For example, Dieter Grauman, the president of the German Central Council of Jews, has said, circumcision of newborn boys is a fixed part of the Jewish religion and has been practiced for centuries. 
He then went on to criticize the Cologne ruling as being outrageous and insensitive. An Islamic representative, Ali Demir, made a similar point. This is a procedure, he said, with thousands of years of tradition behind it and a high symbolic value. Now, as I was preparing this talk, I wondered about whether I should count these sorts of statements as actually being objections to the ethical case made by the German court. Seemingly, it should go without saying that something's having been done for a long time does not in any way amount to an argument for its moral permissibility. The thing might actually be morally permissible, of course, but this just wouldn't be the way to show it. The more I thought about it, however, the more I came to believe that I couldn't just pass over the ancient tradition argument as a sort of a straw man. This is because this exact line of reasoning has been repeatedly cited in recent weeks by a number of influential religious leaders in a seemingly sincere attempt to influence public discussion on this topic. So I need to spend a little bit of time responding to this view with what would otherwise be a statement of the obvious. Many practices that are now seen as very clearly unethical have been going on for an extremely long time before anyone had the idea to question them. Examples include slavery, foot binding, the cutting of female genitals, and beating disobedient children with sticks. Usually, these practices persisted without much alarm for one of two reasons. Either the moral standards that they would eventually be seen as violating had not yet been developed, or those standards did exist for other cases, but just weren't commonly seen as applying to the practice itself until enough people sat down and made the connection. I think what's happening right now with circumcision is not so much the first of these, but more the second. In other words, the relevant ethical principles about bodily integrity, consent, protecting the vulnerable in society, and so on, have been available to us for quite some time now. It's just that we're so used to circumcision as a cultural habit that many people fail to see how blatantly inconsistent this practice is with the rest of their own moral landscape. My colleague, Andrew Sandberg, has given an argument for this view that I think is worth considering in a little bit of detail. This is a pretty long quote I'm going to give, so just uh, bear with me. He writes, it is interesting to consider a fictional case. Suppose I come up with a religion that claims that male nipples are bad and should be removed in infancy in order to prevent various spiritual and medical maladies as well as showing faith. I have no doubt that getting this new practice approved anywhere would be very hard. No matter how much I and my adherents argued that it was a vital part of our religion, no doubt arguments about unnecessary mutilation and infringement of children's self-determination would be made, and most would find them entirely unobjectionable. And if my religion joined the chorus of religious critics to the German decision, it is likely that the others would not appreciate our support. After all, they do not want approval for all religious surgery, just a particular one, and nobody likes to be supported by an embarrassing supporter. But this seems to suggest that what is really going on is a status quo bias and something about the social capital of religions. We are used to circumcision in Western cultures, so it is largely accepted. It's very similar to how certain drugs are regarded as criminal and worth fighting, and yet other drugs like alcohol are merely problems. Policy is not set based on actual harms, but on a social acceptability scale and who has institutional power. This all makes perfect sense sociologically, but it is bad ethics. Now, I don't think that Andrew's scenario is completely watertight, and I don't think that a theologically sophisticated religious person would find the male nipples example to be an appropriate or a complete analogy. But I do think that Andrews is onto something when he suggests that if the ancient tradition objection does carry any weight in this conversation, it is for sociological reasons rather than ethical ones. In fact, I don't see that this objection does any argumentative work for the defender of religious circumcision. It might work as a rhetorical strategy to affirm the social capital of his religion, but it is not an argument. 
I'd like to move on to the second objection that I've heard a number of times in response to the Cologne decision, and this one is potentially a little harder to deal with. This objection is that circumcision is divinely mandated and hence obligatory for religious Jews, and according to some interpretations, although as Sammy explained yesterday, these interpretations are comparatively flimsy, maybe Muslims as well. In Judaism, as we all know, the mandate is even specific about the exact timing of the procedure. According to the book of Genesis, the baby's foreskin must be removed on the eighth day after birth, and this timing is, according to a number of vocal religious commentators, quote, non-negotiable. I want to start with this idea about non-negotiability. My first question is, according to whom? Certainly people like Dieter Graumann, the president of the German Central Council of Jews I mentioned before, has repeated this claim. And so have a number of influential, usually conservative or orthodox Jews, some of whom have been saying some very authoritative sounding things on behalf of, quote, the Jewish people. But this seems to me to be really disingenuous. And actually I find it sort of irritating since the Jewish people is not a collection of uncritical sheep who all think the same thing. The Jewish people do not uniformly adhere to the exact same theology. Uh, and specifically, the Jewish people includes a large and growing number of religious and non-religious individuals, including some very intelligent and morally insightful individuals, who simply do not believe that circumcision is a non-negotiable component of their faith. I suppose that someone could argue that certain conservative representatives within Judaism are theologically correct, and everyone else is deluded, but that would take a lot of time and energy, and it would be an argument that would probably fail to convince anyone who didn't already hold that view. Also, it would be much harder to express as a sort of a simple axiom, which is what the newspapers seem to appreciate, and so instead we get these public declarations that make it sound like Judaism is a monolith, and that there are no meaningful debates to be had about the religious requirements implied by certain passages within the Torah. Another point is this, and again, I wish I were attacking a straw man here, but based on the mainstream public debate I have seen going on in the last few weeks, I feel that some very basic points about the philosophy of religion need to be brought up as reminders. First, even though a person or a group of people may sincerely believe that a given practice is divinely mandated, it doesn't necessarily follow that it is divinely mandated. Second, even if something really is divinely mandated, it doesn't follow that it's non-negotiable. Third, even if something is felt to be non-negotiable, it doesn't follow that it's morally permissible. And this brings us very quickly to the classic dilemma about what you're supposed to do when God tells you to do something that's unethical. We all know the puzzle about Abraham and Isaac, and I thought that Sammy's video from yesterday did a nice job of satirizing the essential point. God tells Abraham that he must sacrifice his son. So what should Abraham do? There are a couple of well-known possibilities in logical space here. One option is that Abraham should assume he's misunderstood something. Since killing innocent children is plainly unethical, and since God is a morally perfect being, God must not really have said that. Another option is that he starts to wonder if maybe he wasn't really talking with God in the first place. Maybe it was Satan, or maybe it was just a voice in his own head. Or he can conclude that God is not as morally developed as he used to think, or is even a source of evil. Whichever way he chooses to go, the correct answer is, no, I will not kill my son. That would be totally depraved, and in fact, I can't think of very many things to do that would be less ethical than that. So no, I refuse to do it. That's the correct answer. Now, obviously, a lot of people have looked at this case over the centuries, and I'm not the first one to give the sort of analysis you just heard. As a number of commentators have noticed, there is a pretty big conflict in this story between the requirements of morality and the requirements of the divine mandate. Kierkegaard thought he could solve this puzzle by talking about the teleological suspension of the ethical. 
This is the idea that we should use our faith to rise above mere ethics and morality and enter into a higher and more absolute relationship with the divine. Now I think that this is a very dangerous thing to propose. And I think it has real consequences, one of which is that the religiously motivated suspension of morality has been a source of a lot of suffering for a lot of people, including marginalized and vulnerable people, for a very long time. But my sense actually is that the large majority of contemporary religious believers don't actually do this. What I mean is, when something is felt to be unethical, what they actually do is one of two things. Either they revise their understanding of what is divinely required in the first place, or else they engage in these very complicated psychological maneuvers, many of them unconscious, that lead them to conclude that the thing must not be unethical after all, even though it really looks like it is from every other perspective. So for circumcision, for example, they might downplay the harms of the procedure, or use euphemisms like snip or flap of skin when they talk about what's being cut off. They might emphasize the health benefits, or exaggerate the differences with female genital cutting, or exaggerate the similarities to vaccination, and a whole range of strategies that make it seem, just kind of, like circumcision isn't really that bad. I have seen one major exception to this approach, however. And this comes from an interview that many of you have probably seen, again, from Eliyahu's documentary. The clip starts with an Orthodox rabbi talking about circumcision. He says, it's painful, it's abusive, it's traumatic. And if anybody who's not in a covenant does it, I think they should be put in prison. I don't think anybody has an excuse for mutilating a child, depriving them of part of their penis. We don't have rights to other people's bodies, and a baby needs to have its rights protected. I think anybody who circumcises a baby is an abuser, unless it's absolutely medically advised. Otherwise, what for? After a moment of what I interpreted as stunned silence, you can hear Eliyahu asking a really pertinent question. How does this covenant alleviate your ethical responsibility that you just so articulately posed? How is it that being in this covenant exempts you from that term? How can you not call yourself an abuser? The rabbi actually cuts him off and says, I'm an abuser. I do abusive things because I'm in covenant with God. And ultimately, God owns my morals. He owns my body. He owns my past and future. And that's the meaning of this covenant, that I agreed to ignore the pain and the rights and the trauma of my child to be in this covenant. Now, I want to say that actually I have a lot of respect for this rabbi. I think that his statements reach a level of honesty and empathy and philosophical consistency that has otherwise been lacking from the wider public conversation on this issue. Here's someone who acknowledges, without hedging or qualification, that he is torturing a child. But he doesn't take this knowledge as an excuse to go back to his scripture and reinterpret the original commandment. Nor does he allow himself to believe that circumcision is a harmless little snip. He just doesn't resolve the dissonance. Instead, he takes responsibility for his religious commitments as well as for his behavior. And I think that by doing this, he gives us a rare and unmediated example of the power of religious belief to justify what he acknowledges is the violent assault of a child. So what should we do with this? I started with the idea that it should be considered morally impermissible to remove healthy tissue from another person's body without getting that person's permission. And since circumcision violates that rule, I said it was unethical. 
Then I tried to show that the ancient tradition objection doesn't get us off the hook, nor do the points about circumcision being divinely mandated or non-negotiable. So at this point, it seemed like we should be able to stick with the conclusion that circumcision is, in fact, unethical. But now we have something different. Now we have this idea to think about that maybe there's something bigger than ethics, something like this direct relationship to the divine. I said at the beginning that I thought there was a hidden metaphysic behind religious defenses of circumcision. And now I think that we're getting a better sense of what that is. I think it's this idea that an individual human being, such as a child, is not really the ultimate object of moral analysis. Instead, there are these other obligations, obligations that come from a community identity, obligations that come from a concern about historical continuity or ritual continuity, obligations that come from a special covenant between a god and a group of people. And the effect of all this is that the individual child becomes a sort of a non-entity. His body becomes not his body. His pain becomes a sort of instrument in fulfilling a higher purpose. And so I think before we will be able to get anywhere in this discussion, we are going to just have to acknowledge that this is a different metaphysic. I think we have to acknowledge that certain religious commitments are based on a meta-ethical view of the universe that is in direct conflict with Western ideas about individuals, human rights adhering to those individuals as individuals, and the notion that children and infants above all need special protection because they can't defend those rights on their own. I guess my response to this conflict is that obviously we can, in theory, adopt any metaphysical view under the sun. We could try to organize society around a view that involves sacrificing human hearts in order to make the crops grow. We could adopt a view that says it's okay to have slaves and wage war and take our neighbor's land and belongings. We could adopt a view that says that animals should be set on fire and burnt at the altar, or that says that sparing the rod will spoil the child, or that our daughters should be stoned to death if they disobey, or whatever we want. All of these views are logically possible, and many of them are historically accurate. Many of them find direct textual support as well in the holy books of major religions. And even in 2012, a number of these practices are apparently psychologically sustainable under conditions of social isolation and dogmatism and ignorance and are still going on in many parts of the world. But that isn't how we like to think about things in Western societies. We have a different sort of worldview that we use to make sense of concepts like human rights. And I think we like this metaphysic because it allows us to do things like construct a coherent and sensible legal code. It allows us to do things like prosecute cases of rape and criminal assault. And it allows us to say that these things are wrong not just arbitrarily or because God says so or because we just feel like doing it this way, but because we have a reason to say so. They are wrong because individuals have rights. They are wrong because those rights include things like bodily integrity. And they are wrong because the infringement of that integrity requires consent. So the idea I want to leave you with is this. If we think there is any chance that we should give up on these basic concepts so that we can defer to a worldview that says that things like community identity are more important than individual identity and bodily integrity, then we'll have to pay the price of that choice and face it honestly. And that means that the very same people who are asking for the religious freedom to perform circumcisions within a wider secular society would have to be prepared to give up their own right to complain if someone wanted to cut off a part of their body or interfere with their genitals or that of their daughters or sisters or wives. That is, as I say, a logically possible universe, but it isn't one that I would want to live in, and I don't think you can have it both ways. Thank you.
Brian. That was, that was a great talk. And it's really refreshing for me as a Jewish activist to hear a non-Jewish, young, budding, passionate, uh, and logical uh, man explain these things to a very sympathetic audience. Um, when I first got into the, uh, this world about 12 years ago, a common theme that I heard from my non-Jewish colleagues was, I won't even go there to the Jewish question. And I never understood that. And I think it's great that, uh, that you are expressing these arguments. Um, and I've always encouraged my non-Jewish colleagues to not back off just because they have to deal with the potential anti-Semitic card. And now, obviously, they've referred a lot of these, these people to me, and I'm always glad to be able to deal with it. Uh, I would, would, would just say one thing. You're very passionate. You're very um, logical. But sometimes passion and logic doesn't work when you're dealing with this issue with some rabbis. I, first of all, I never, ever, ever get into a pissing contest with these people. I mean, you just don't win. So if you have some discussion which is respectful and tolerant of the other per person's point of view, then you can have the dialogue. Whenever they start yelling, I mean, I just will walk away. So I just, that's one thing you might be thinking about when you give this larger talk to uh, perhaps not, not so sympathetic audience. Uh, but I think you have a, a, a great deal of information, which of course we've all, we all agree with and we've heard before, but you, you presented it in a very logical and sequential fashion. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Amstel. Uh, three comments. The first, uh, I think that the, the fact that many of your colleagues uh, refuse to deal with circumcision is because it's very toxic. I mean, academically, uh, they, they may endanger their career. So it's not because it's they, they're afraid to offend their colleagues, just because they are uh, they take care of their careers and it's really toxic. I know it personally. And the second thing, uh, many ultra-Orthodox Jews say what this rabbi said, and I've met a few of them, and they admit that it's, it's a horrible thing to do, but it's, it's, it's divine. God has told them to do it, and they don't understand why other people do it, because they say it's horrible. So I think it's, it's clear that the only way to deal with them is by enforce the law, because you cannot convince them. It's impossible. So maybe if you put them in jail, they'll be thinking differently. And the third thing is that many people here, I, I start, I, the, my first uh, congress was a symposium was 14 years ago in Oxford, and then many people here refused to deal with the Jewish issue because they say it's not important, they, they, they deal with secular circumcision. I claim there's no secular circumcision, it's, always, it's religiously motivated. And I think now many of the people here acknowledge that they must deal with Jewish circumcision, otherwise nothing will change. Okay. Uh, may I speak? Yeah, do. Uh, the last symposium uh, we, we had in the United States, there has been a, a debate whether we have to treat about 
medical circumcision or religious circumcision. Because some people wanted to avoid to insult Jews or some, some like that. We were very divided in that day. Some people said we will speak only about medical circumcision. Leave religious circumcision aside. And some Jews protested. They said, you are racist. It means Jewish children have no right to be protected. You don't like to treat that subject. And I am very happy to see that today, really, we progressed. <laughs> I am really very happy that in 10 years, we jumped in and we say, look, religious, not religious, it is a child first of all. And this is the most important. If we don't leave religious arguments aside, we will have problems. Don't worry about rabbis. Go to hell or rabbis, religious. We have bishops in Switzerland who took position in favor of male circumcision. Bishops who are not circumcised and whose religion is against circumcision because they are coward. <laughs> this is the problem. And we don't have to take care of cowards. Cowards is not our problem, it is their problem. We have to deal with the problems. I, I think Dan was. Well, I'll let him speak for himself. On okay. But I would like to, a couple things I'd like to point out. Uh, Harry Meisel is a good friend of mine, so I'm going to defend him a little bit because you didn't finish his quote. Oh, yeah, that's true. What he goes on immediately to say is that he will tell Jewish parents that Jewish babies feel pain just like any other baby, yeah. and Jewish men are sometimes very angry about being cut. So he, he doesn't. What he's trying to say in what he says he doesn't prescribe to Jews is that he doesn't go out of his way to harass the, the, the religious issue. But he's saying that it's all the same. And I, I think if, if you want to use oh, that yeah. quote, I'd rather leave his name out of it. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's fine, because you're right. I was using him as a rhetorical device, and that's not fair. And, sure. uh, one other point is the male nipple thing. Uh, it, I, I would prefer, and I, I use examples that are actual real things that happen in the world, like amputating fingers on little girls in Guinea and things like that. <coughs> because it, to me, when you say the male nipple thing, that's so absurd, yeah. nobody would do that. And yet, when you can say, well, they actually amputate fingers on little girls, that actually, I think, as a real thing, makes a bigger impression. Maybe I'll use less of his quote there and, and use a better example and then pick up with his argument again. Because it obviously it was embedded within his, his argument. And, um, yeah. One thing, but I forgot. So. <laughs> um, yeah, great presentation. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the uh, shout out to the film. That was nice. Um, a couple of points. Of course, I agree with you that in principle, um, the ethical issues around male circumcision are identical, um, whether it's a religious circumcision or a medical circumcision. However, there's, a, there's, a, there's an added dimension here um, that needs to be discussed, and I think we can really take a look at the difference between 
the struggle against circumcision in Europe and the United States to illuminate what I'm about to explain. If you look at the United States, the majority of circumcisions are done in hospitals. Um, and so as a practical, pragmatic, political um, sort of move, the, the fight against circumcision in the United States um, is qualitatively different um, from the fight against circumcision in Europe where it's mainly a religious practice. And when I, when I say pragmatic, what I mean is that um, the effects, for example, of legislation against circumcision in the United States versus circumcision in Europe um, would be vastly different. Um, in Europe, um, it, it would in some ways rightly be interpreted as targeting religi a religious practice. Because it's just so uncommon outside of those. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and the effects of that, the consequences of that, may be, as um, Geert was saying the other day, that it would go underground. Mm -hmm. Versus in the United States, if legislation were passed, and again, I, I don't think this is particularly likely, but as a thought experiment, what you would do is actually eradicate most of the circumcisions overnight because hospitals would no longer be practicing them. So th these are sort of pragmatic, strategic considerations, but they actually have real life consequences. Do you think that it would make sense to address, the, I, 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 I agree that once you get your, get your ethical principles in order, you still have the, the, the whole rest of the journey is to get from there to what, what should we do? What's the legislative thing that makes sense or doesn't make sense? And I recently thought that it, uh, passing, I mean, passing bans, you know, is, is doesn't doesn't work in a lot of areas. We tried prohibition in the United States, and maybe we had a good or a bad ethical argument about whether you should drink alcohol. But the point is, it just doesn't work, and you get the mafia, and you get all these problems. So uh, that's true. In general, child abuse is illegal, and, and it's enforced, and child abuse goes down when it's made illegal. Or it doesn't get reported. Abusers go to prison. Yeah, well, 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 sure. This is obviously depending on what is the phenomenon you're, you're dealing with. There are, are different cases about what will follow from that. I'm I'm not convinced that uh, banning circumcision is is uh, is self-evidently the best uh, practical solution to the problem. What my speech is about is trying to get my ethical house in order, and then it seems to me there's a further con conversation, which probably has lots of interlocking parts, to decide then what is the social response or the legislative response. And that would be a completely separate paper, it seems to me, because there's just so many issues right. to bring up. So I don't know whether maybe at the end I, I, sh I should just, it'd be kind of a, a anti-climax, but say something about, you know, that the legislative issues are separate. But I, maybe, I, or maybe I'll just make clear that I'm ex exclusively. I, I'd start there, actually. I'd yeah. start by saying that this is, we're going to talk about the, the ethical principles involved, and then we could, there are practical considerations that are a separate issue. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to say is that um, I think hanging the entire ethical case against circumcision on the issue of consent and autonomy yeah. is a bit of a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that, it, it, it's not that it's incorrect, it's just not um, as powerful an ethical case as if you include um, the lifelong effects of circumcision on male sexuality, for example. And the reason I bring this up is because, um, and I'll be talking a little bit about this in my presentation on Wednesday, but I encountered, uh, I don't know if you've encountered this, uh, this fellow yet, but there's a professor at University of Chicago named uh, Richard Schwader. And Richard Schwader oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wrote an excellent... Shouting at the Hebrews. Shouting right? at the Hebrews. Yeah, an excellent paper. It's, yeah. a, it's actually a very um, intelligent, well thought it out... Is, it is. Um, and the reason I'm bringing him up here is because he accepts 
the notion that circumcision is an illiberal practice, infant circumcision is an illiberal practice, but he makes the argument that that doesn't necessarily make it unethical. Mm -hmm. And what I think, and what I discovered, I actually interviewed him, had a conversation with him when I was in Chicago. What I discovered was that actually our disagreement, my disagreement with him, in large part hangs on um, how damaging is it, and yep. how can we can we demonstrate that? So I think that that's actually a really important part of the ethical case. That's a that's yeah. a huge point. Yeah. Thanks. Back row. Yes. I, I thought you oh, wanted. Yes. Yes. Um. I. I guess I feel that um, people who believe circumcision is okay. I mean, after you've explained what's going on with them, with with it, you know. Um, are living in a, like, almost like science fiction, like in that other ethical reality, the pre-enlightenment era. And um, I think the modern era, especially since 1948, the you know, Declaration of Human Rights and so forth, we, those people, just have to pass a law that says we don't, it's not legal, legal to cut off living bits of tissue off non-consenting, helpless, people and the people that are in that sort of nether world that science fiction other thing that's kind of reaching up from the grave of you know four thousand years ago we'll just have to suck it up um, <laughs> 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 because they don't, we don't live in that world anymore yeah. now we live in this world she, uh, so, 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 sammy and uh, you want to speak she, and, and then then tim about, I will, I will say just something about law. Certainly, law forbidding a, a practice is not the best way to abolish male and female circumcision, but the society has a right to have a law. The society has the right to have a law. Uh, you, you need a law for uh, street traffic, even if there are many accidents. You cannot say if we make a law or we want to make a law, you will always have uh, accident. No, uh, against drugs, drugs. You need to have a law. Uh, certainly, you will not abolish drugs. You will not abolish the accidents of uh, cars accidents. But you, you, the society has the right to have a law to be clear as a reference. This is Tim. I want to echo what Ali said about proving the harm, which is the whole reason that I'm here. I'm an old school activist from gay rights, and I know that the whole idea of talking to society about, gee, you really need to treat gay and lesbian people equally just because it's the right thing to do, yeah. didn't wash. Yeah, yeah. What the gay movement had to do was to document the harm, document people who were being fired from jobs, people who were denied housing, people who were denied parental custody. And when it finally got out there to society about this is how gay and lesbian people are harmed by these laws or by social attitudes, then it started the ball rolling until today, now we're just talking magically about equality and while that's the right thing to do, treat people equally, I think in some ways our movement still has the cart before the horse. We're talking about gender autonomy and bodily integrity and human rights, but we haven't really fully documented the harm in a way that is acceptable to society uh, in terms of like 
formal medical studies. So I, I, if that's what you were saying, Ellie, I really want to echo that. I think that's a wonderful point, Tim, because, because I've heard more than one rabbi say, if we, if we really thought that circumcision harmed babies, we would stop doing it. And so we have to prove the harm. That's right on. And, but I, I'm not against the law either, because the law sets a standard. And, and even, if you have, even if you have a drive, the practice under, underground, and babies die, babies die in hospitals. So uh, passing a law doesn't bother you. We have a multi-education. We have to do it all. <laughs> um, the chat behind you, sorry. Yes? Thank you. Thank you. Yes? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> it seems to me, at least in my practice, that when we talk about circumcision, we're talking about adults. We're talking adults, what we can do to children. If we could frame the debate, which I think the German decision did, into a debate about the child's rights. Look at it from the child's perspective, not the adult's perspective of what rights we have to visit harm upon the child. It seems as though it becomes more effective. If you look at the debate from the child's perspective and put ourselves into the child's shoes that is being strapped down and being mutilated, it seems as though it makes a big difference. And I think the German court got it right when it analyzed that the child's rights trump those of the religious uh, uh, doctrine and also the, the concept of parentis patriae and the parent's rights. So I think if we frame the argument from a child's perspective and look at it from that perspective, it is more effective. I think framing the argument with uh, using Kierkegaard's model will make the most sense because basically what that rabbi did is he gave Kierkegaard's argument. He did. He yeah. said it's not rational. There are things that are religious are you take the leap of faith as Kierkegaard would say and you argue on that level. Mm -hmm. And so anytime one of the religious people starts falls back on the medical arguments or it's just a snip or it's just a harm. There's no harm to it, they're being cowards. Yeah. They're, they're not men of faith at that point. A man of faith, uh, and Kierkegaard wrote a whole book on the whole thing with the, the human sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, yeah. And, and showed that Abraham was a man of faith because he suspended rationality to follow what God told him what to do. So at, at one level, I think you have that the reason that uh, people are afraid to argue the religious thing is because if you're going to make us any headway in something that's based on matters of faith, you need people in the same faith to make headway on it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to make any headway on a matter of faith giving a rational argument. It's not going to go anywhere because it's in the wrong realm. Um, the other thing that you should look at is, uh, you know, Rawls talks about how religion fits into a secular society. And one of the things in the secular society is, is that we have to be able to tolerate other religions, but also there has to be a level of reasonableness it, uh, for us to accept uh, religious practices. And religious practices based on some uh, doctrine or dogma should not be telling other people what to do or what they can and cannot do. There has to be a public debate or a public forum on whether these practices are acceptable. 
And typically, we use uh, rationality to determine what's <coughs> acceptable in society. We don't allow things in society that are dangerous to people or violate people's rights just because God told someone to do it. And, and so um, fitting that practice into a modern secular society just does, doesn't fit. I think I think one, one more question, John, and then we must press on. A question, sort of a dual question, and not really related. Well, they are related. Your your example of the male nipples could be better use the uh, the example of forehead cutting in Ashura. That, that section of, of of Shiite belief that the way we memorialize the beheading of the saint of the Imam uh, Hussein in 780 is to slash children's foreheads once a year during Ramadan so that they bleed. So it looks like a beheading, which is a horrific, horrible thing. By the way, if anyone wants to Google it, just Google Ashura images, and you'll have all the nightmares you need for a year or two. How, how do you and spell that? that? <laughs> how do you spell Ashura? Ashura is it's usual ways, but S A S H O U R A. Ask yes, Sandy yes, Hill. Did right. I get the right thing? Yes, yes. Sometimes the U is missing. S H Y R A. Right. Okay. Ashura. It's a great example because it's extremely yeah. unfamiliar to people, but on the other hand, very real to the Shiite people who perform it every year. Mm. The other comment is, are, are talking about cowardice and bravery, do you dare, dare, in your speech, use the word superstition? I mean, I'm a non-believer, so to me, that those come, that word comes easily to my lips. But there are plenty of people who, of course, find it instantly offensive. Especially yeah. in the U.S. Especially in the U.S. So, yeah, I, I don't know if... Uh, um, how many people saw a debate I did with this guy named Nari Cohen at the University of Nebraska? He's this, really? He's a, yeah. He's a, he's, a, he's a, ironically, he's a professor of human rights. Um, but he was taking the opposite view. Uh, so, and he's this a Jewish professor. And he, he, he criticized me for uh, what he said was not taking seriously the religious commitments of Jews. And I, I, had, I had to work on how to reply to this. The first is that I was raised in a, a very kind of fundamentalist Christian family myself. So I certainly know what it's like to operate within a given religious framework. And I worked within that framework pretty deductively for uh, you know 18 or 20 years. So I, I, I explained to him that I didn't want to be glib about suggesting that I don't understand what it's like to operate out of these principles. But on the other hand, if you, if you have a bit of a paradigm shift, and then you look back at, what a, at somebody who's justifying behavior on the basis of dogmatism, it is very hard to, to give deference to it. All of a sudden, you sort of want to just use the word like superstition. Now, there's this, the, the difficulty is, of course, is uh, how do you have an effective conversation and who, whose mind are you trying to change? So you know, if you look at people like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens who are making these anti-religious comments, they sure fire up people who already agree with them. In fact, they're very effective at that. And, and, and it's useful in a way because they, they show that you can courageously make fun of stupid ideas. And I think that, that, is, that, that has a role to play in society. But if what you're trying to do is to convince you know, my mother that she should give up her belief in Jesus, uh, you know, they'll have the opposite effect on her. So I, I, just, have to, I just have to figure out which, which rhetorical you know, train I want to be on. Because I get it. I, I get all these different perspectives. And I think I'm trying on different hats right now and seeing what will work and, and to whom are my comments addressed. There's Thanks. not one way. If there was, he would have stopped the day it began. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I, I did say one more, but. Um, um, Mark, you're willing to give up some of your time, right? Because we're in a critical discussion. We'll go a little bit longer.
Reasonable to question the existence of God, but whether God exists or not, He commanded circumcision. So, I like that. Oh, yeah. But, but uh, the, the, the important thing to keep in mind here is there is a distinction between religious belief and religious practice. Yeah. And when, when you're talking about a constitutional democracy or any constitutional government, the, it, it's important to bear in mind that the right to practice one's religion is not infinite. Yeah. Um, even the right to belief is not infinite. Both of those ultimately derive right back from that constitution that may or may not grant freedom of religion. Yeah. So you think of you know, the religious rights as being this towering thing that goes up infinitely but then you look at the framework of the constitutional democracy, and it actually is rather defined. It has a roof. Yeah. You know, it says it's reasonable up to this point. So, it, and you might appreciate this philosophically. It, you know, the, all these people are saying freedom of religion. Uh, you, our constitution grants freedom of religion. They're saying it in Germany. They say it in the United States. But it's kind of ironic because this freedom of religion that they're claiming derives ultimately from the secular constitutional framework, which has an upper limit. So they can't go crashing through this up to the sky and say, we can do all these things up here. Yeah. And, the, and that particular limit is actually not really the same for belief and for practice. That's a very powerful idea. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for yeah. saying that. that, that I, I remember the third thing I wanted to say. And that was, uh, in addition to what Sammy had said about the Catholic Church in, in Germany saying religious tolerance, and so I'm going to do some Catholic bashing here. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the Pope, the Pope does not say that abortion is wrong only for Catholics. He does not say that condoms are wrong only for Catholics. So when the Catholic Church says circumcision is wrong, then they have no business saying that, okay, well, it's okay for Jews and Muslims. So if they're going to be consistent, you know, you either say condoms and abortions are okay for everybody else, unless you, you know, they have to. They have the Catholic Church needs to be called out on their support of the the religious tolerance in Germany. I I, I want. Well, did you want to say one more thing? Um, I was trying to think of something pertinent to say about the limits of freedom, and I remember some U.S. senator said that. <clears throat> Freedom of speech ends with the tip of your neighbor's nose. Mm -hmm. And I think the freedom of religion might end with the tip of your penis. Those are the biggest observations related. I can say one more thing. So I, I want to turn this uh, into, as I say, a, a better talk. And I also probably want to turn it into something like a paper. So. Anybody who wants to give me uh, more detailed critical feedback, I, I really was asking for that, and maybe uh, I'm sure my email exists easily on the internet, <laughs> for better or worse. So uh, please send me an email with your critical feedback, and I, if anyone wants to help me out with these ideas, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. <laughs>